Well, good evening. It's good to be with you and to open God's Word with you. If you have a Bible, if you take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to talk about the, uh, the, how, the, how the work of God is going on in the world, how we're to join Him in it, and why that matters. Matthew chapter 4 is going to be the text we use from tonight. It's good to see so many uh, friends, old and new, that are here. Um, it's exciting to be here at this meeting. I don't know about you, I'm thrilled to be here, excited to be at this kind of conference where we actually provoke one another to love and good deeds and be about God's mission. Matthew chapter 4 is going to be the text that we're going to use to do that very thing. It's a very short passage, and it's actually a sentence I want to look at today, and it's something I'm passionate about, and I want to talk about it, how we might encourage one another. When Aaron kind of talked to me and, and uh, Aaron Coe kind of briefed me on what they wanted to talk, uh, me to talk about, they want us specifically to focus in the main sessions on some theological foundations, some missiological principles that then will be lived out in some of the practical teaching in the breakout sessions. So I'm excited to be able to do tonight. I want to talk about how the church is a tool and an instrument of the kingdom of God, how church planting is the tool God is using, one of many, is a tool God is using so that we might see his kingdom advance, how evangelism is the means by which men and women hear the good news of the gospel and are birthed as citizens of his kingdom, and how ultimately we are to join him on his mission. Matthew chapter 4 is an interesting text because it represents a bit of a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. It's, uh, there are things going on before, but then something happens that's very unique and particular here in Matthew chapter 4. When you look, and you'll see this particularly, well, if we, if we look at verses uh, all the way up to verse 1, we find that there's the temptations of Jesus, and then he goes into his ministry in Galilee, and that's in verse uh, 12 and following, uh, to fulfill the prophecy as in Isaiah. And then he comes to verse Verse 17, and 17 is a, a key turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Here's what it says It says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's a short sentence. You may have heard it before. It's something you see in end-of-the-world movies. Repent. People hold up signs. The end is near. But what Jesus actually said is rather remarkable. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, again, I I'm, I'm find this remarkable because this is this turning point. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach. So if you look through and you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll see Jesus' almost obsession with the kingdom of God. This shouldn't surprise us. The kingdom of God came when Jesus the king showed up. When the king showed up, the kingdom showed up. And so Jesus announces in Matthew 4.17, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then throughout the gospel of Matthew and the other gospels, he refers to the kingdom of God more than 80 times, depending on how you count, there's some overlap, but more than 80 times he refers to the kingdom of God as at hand or, or near or here. Matter of fact, he tells us in Matthew 6.33 to seek first to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He teaches us in the disciples' model prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus speaks often, speaks fervently, and reminds us of the importance of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. And this isn't simply a new idea to the hearers there that day when Jesus says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. They weren't unaware of the idea of the kingdom of God been promised throughout the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it was building towards this moment. And as the Old Testament develops, we get a fuller and fuller picture of what God is talking about when he refers to the king and, and to the kingdom. But we see this picture, and it's a remarkable thing, because the kingdom of God showed up when Jesus the king showed up. B.B. Warfield once put it this way. He said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. 
The signs which accompany his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. One touch of the hem of his garment that he wore could medicine whole countries of their pain. One touch of that pale hand could restore life. So the kingdom of God came when Jesus the king came, and so now the church is birthed in the kingdom's wake, becomes a tool for the kingdom's agenda. So let's look at kind of where we are theologically, and then I want us to look at where we are statistically. Right now, I'm president of Life Research. I'll quote a few stats so it might help us along the way. But I want to first bring us to where we are theologically to help us understand what's going on as the church becomes a kingdom tool, a kingdom instrument in the world. If you're taking notes, I'm going to talk about four things today just from this passage of Scripture. The first is I'm going to actually skip repentance. I know that's going to bother some of you, and that's kind of my intent, but I'm going to actually skip repentance, and I'm going to start another rumor, but I'm going to skip repentance, and I'm going to put it at the end of the message. Why? Because it says repent because. And so I want to talk about the cause before I talk about the repentance. And so let's take a look as we look together at what it means that the kingdom of heaven it has come near or is at hand. The first thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down is this, the reign of God, the reign of God. See, we'd make a mistake if we think that the idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, Matthew tends to prefer the phrase the kingdom of heaven, but interchangeably, mostly uses it interchangeably with the kingdom of God. But we'd make a mistake if we think that the kingdom of God language was the first time that God has, well, ever referred to Jesus. God has ever referred to himself as king when Jesus came as king. No, no, this is, this is a language that goes throughout the scriptures. Let's talk first about God. Because what we see throughout the pages of scripture is God has always been seen and always understood as king. This is important because we got to start by understanding God has always been, is now, and always will be sovereign over all. See, this is important. People want to debate the sovereignty of God. I get that. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, though, that's not an issue of debate. You're actually a heretic. So God is sovereign over all things. So so now the question is, how does he exercise his sovereignty? That's something that people debate. But the sovereignty of God, God has always reigned over everything. He always has, he does now, and he always will. Now, Psalm 47 puts it this way. It says, clap your hands, all you people. This would lead you. I said, all you people. You can tell I memorized it when I was a kid. Uh, Clap your hands, all you peoples, uh, it says in the HCSB, which is, as you know, the best translation. Shout to God with a jubilant cry. For Yahweh, the Most High, it says, is awe-inspiring. Here it is. Don't miss this in verse 2 of Psalm 47. A great king over all the earth. God ascends, in verse 5 it says, over shouts of joy. The Lord, among the sound of trumpets, sing God, sing praise to God, sing praise to our King. Here it says in verse 7, sing a song of wisdom, for God is King of all the earth. God is, was, and always shall be the King over all the earth. In Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. God has always been, is now, and always will be sovereign, the king over all. Again, people debate how that's applied individually. I get that, but I want us to begin with the understanding because something has happened in the world. The world has gone bad, the world is somehow broken. 
Well, the effects of the fall. So we start with God. He's always been. He has ruled over all of the universe, always has, always will, from his throne in heaven. God always has been, always will be, and is now sovereign over everything. But something's gone on in the world, hasn't there? What does that tell us? Well, the Bible speaks of this on many occasions, but in one occasion it looks back to our former condition and speaks of the current condition of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Speaking of believers, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't miss that. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to this worldly age. So you and I were dead once, and the world, I don't want you to miss this, the world is dead in its trespasses and sins which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain. Older translations say the prince of the power of the air. And so what's happened here is this, is God has always ruled, but the world is in an illegitimate rebellion against the sovereign rule of God, and the world now is filled with people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The Spirit, it says in Ephesians 2.2, the Spirit now working in the disobedience. Now, this is exceedingly important, because if we don't get this, we, don't, we miss the whole reason for sharing Christ. See, I'm convinced that a lot of churches are filled with people who are fine recruiting their friends to church. They'll often recruit people from a nearby church because theirs is better, and they they fill up with people who are recruiting to their church when the reality is, when we understand the Scriptures, it's not simply that the world is filled with people who need to be recruited to our churches. The world is filled with people who are dead and at enmity with God and need to be reconciled. So it's not a mission of recruitment we are on, but a mission of reconciliation that we are on. Men and women need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm deeply disturbed how that has been continuously de-emphasized in most churches. I'm deeply disturbed how that is often de-emphasized in the lives of many pastors. We have to get that the world around us is filled with people who are dead and need Jesus to make them alive. And that means you and me. right? I've got to live it. You've got to live it. But we've got to recognize the condition. Now this is... It's deeply, deeply personal for me. I, I just came from a, a wedding. I was in, I was in South Carolina um, this week in, in uh, Myrtle Beach, the land of, uh, of, of, of buffets, mini golf, and lazy rivers. And uh, we had a great time there. My brother got, my brother got married, and uh, we went down for the wedding, and I stayed over and preached at a church on Sunday. Um, but you know, my family, I don't, come from a, I don't come from a Christian home. Some of you have a godly heritage. So I was around lost people most of this past week. And it's not just this generic out there idea. I I was around people that I love, that the Bible says, and I believe, are dead in their trespasses and sins. And without hearing the good news of the gospel and responding by grace and through faith, without them calling out upon the name of the Lord so they might be saved, they will die dead in their trespasses and sins, and they will be separated from God for eternity in a place called hell. And until we recognize the reality of the spiritual condition of the world, that it is dead in its trespasses and sins in rebellion to the good, perfect, sovereign will of a good and holy God, we do not get their condition, so we lack our needed passion. They're not needing to be recruited to our church. They need to be reconciled to God. 
The kingdom of heaven starts God. God rules everything from heaven. God has always ruled, but the world is in an illegal and illegitimate rebellion against the sovereign, good, and perfect rule of God. So what then are we? If the world's in rebellion to the good and sovereign rulership of God, the world's in rebellion, what are, the, what are we? Well, Christians, well, well let's, let's look at what the Scriptures say. The world, dead in its trespasses and sins, in rebellion to the good and sovereign rule of God. The, what, what are we? Colossians 1, 13 and 14 describes you, describes me. It says this, he has delivered us, this is God, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the world in rebellion to the good, perfect, rightful rule of God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God has always ruled over all the universe sovereignly. The world is in rebellion to his good and perfect will, and yet God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So when we speak of the reign of God, we have to understand what's going on all around us. What's going on all around us is the the world is in rebellion to the reign of God, but He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And so what then is our role? Well, as Christians, you are an ambassador. Your neighbors need Jesus. If you're a pastor, your church and all the neighbors of your church family, they need Jesus. And by the way, let's not bemoan the fact that there's not enough evangelism going on. Oh, Christians seem to love evangelism as long as somebody else is doing it. Let's not bemoan the lack of evangelism. Let's lead people into the good news and then lead people to tell the good news. Listen, you cannot lead what you do not live, Pastor. That means you and I living that out in our own lives. Why? Because the world is dead in its trespasses and sins. I lead a small group in my home on Sunday nights. I'm there uh, about three quarters of the time because I preach at my church on Sundays and for me, you know, I'm, I, I've got a full-time job at Lifeway selling Bibles. And um, so I, I, uh, so, yeah, I, I only have certain things I can do at the church. So I serve as a lead pastor. And so there are three things that I do. One is, is I, I prepare the messages three-quarters of the time. I meet with the staff. We have a staff team, great team. And, uh, and lastly, I lead a small group in my neighborhood. Why? Because my neighbors need Jesus. And of the eight people that are within one or two houses of me, seven of them have come to our Bible study, come to our church, and of those, all have had a discussion about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. doesn't mean that all are yet followers of Jesus. matter of fact, half are not followers of Jesus, though two or three are now involved and engaged in our small group in our church. Why do such a thing? Because I'm convinced that if I'm going to do that, I go around training pastors, encouraging people, that's great. I can be a motivational speaker living in a van down by the river. But at the end of the day... At the end of the day, I'm an ambassador in a world that's dark and broken. You're an ambassador. Your church is an embassy. And sharing Christ and planting churches is how God advances his kingdom in the world. That's why I love what the North American Mission Board is talking about. Sharing Christ, mobilizing believers, planting churches, all matter. So number one, we understand the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's not the totality of the sentence. It's number one, the kingdom of God. Number two... Well, it's the already, but the not yet. 
See, the kingdom of God's come into the world, but the world's in rebellion to the rightful rule of a good and sovereign God. Yet Jesus says the kingdom has come. Using present tense force, he says the kingdom has come. Now, to get this, we need some theological foundation to get what this means. Requires some theological terminology, but I believe if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn theological language at church. The idea here is what theologians called inaugurated eschatology. It's, it's the idea that the kingdom has come. It has begun. It's been inaugurated. A president, a prime minister, a premier, they're all inaugurated at the beginning of the term. They begin their term. It's not done. The kingdom has begun. It's been inaugurated, but it is still to come, still to be revealed, to be understood. So it's eschatology. The kingdom is already, but it's not yet. And you know that, and I know that. The Bible says, I've read the end of it, I see how it works out, but the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before King Jesus. But right now I know and you know that every tongue is not confessing King Jesus. That's why we're confessing Jesus to them. See, we know that to be the case. It's, it's not yet fully here. Yet the Bible speaks of the kingdom it, 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 with this present tent force in multiple places. The, the kingdom is among us. And yet it also, the New Testament points to the kingdom fully to come. It's not yet fully here. It's, there's something still to come. And you know that and I know that. People are still lost and need Jesus. The world's still a broken place. Uh, many of you prayed for my daughter um, when six weeks ago, I guess it was almost two months ago now, she was bit by a tick and stricken ill with a Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, got diagnosed late because she didn't manifest spots until late. So she went to the hospital, emergency room, and then and we basically were in the hospital for the next week. And by about halfway through, we weren't sure what the next day would bring. Um, I, matter of fact, I was supposed to, last time I was supposed to be in Atlanta was at the National Conference of Preaching, just uh, it's not far from here, and I had to cancel because I was sitting next to my, lying next to my daughter, sleeping there, giving her $5 for every time she would take a sip of slushy. I'm not sure she didn't stretch that a little bit longer than she, <laughs> than she would have. I, I'd give her anything. I'd give her $100 to take anything. I just, because she didn't eat or drink for four days, she slipped more and more into lethargy, and we were worried. They had 11 doctors in. They were calling the CDC. We were scared to death, but why? Because you and I both know we live in a broken world. It's still broken. Got together with my family this week, and we swapped pictures, and I'm, but I'm sitting at this table with, with like nine sets of grandparents who used to be married to each other. Mom, this is Dad. You guys haven't seen each other in a long, long time. See, we live in a world that's broken. We show pictures of my sister who died of cancer at a young age. Why? The world is broken with people without Christ in a world that's broken because it has turned away from Christ. And in the midst of that, Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, but clearly it's already, but it's not yet. Yet here we serve in the midst. June 6, 1944 um, was a significant day. Some of you, but not many of you, would remember that day as you maybe lived it. It's an amphibious landing of 160,000 soldiers on the beaches of Normandy with 24,000 paratroopers kind of parachuting down between the foggy sky and, and tracer fire all around them. Allied forces landed on that day in a place called Normandy. And they knew, Hitler knew, the Axis knew, and the Allies knew that if they could get a beachhead on the continent of Europe, that the war actually was won. The forces were already weakened by the war in, in Russia. Uh, the, the, the Nazis knew they were in trouble. So they all tried to find the place where this landing could be. 
because if the Nazis could stop it, the Allies might lose. But if the Allies got onto the shore of the continent of Europe, then they knew that victory was assured. They knew that they would win. And that day was called D-Day. And on, May, on June 6, 1944, they landed, they established a beachhead, and the war was won. That's an interesting phrase to say the war was won. Because if you know history, the war wasn't over, but the war was won. Everybody knew it. The newspapers knew it. Everybody knew the war was won. Hitler knew it on that day. But for almost another full year, the fighting raged on, inflicting more casualties in that next year than at any other time in the war on both sides of the conflict. People died. They went across France, across the Rhine, the Battle of the Bulge, until they marched into the streets of Berlin a week after Hitler commits suicide. And then on that day, on May 7th, 1945, on that day, it was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Now, I want you to miss this. On D-Day, the end of the war was inaugurated. But on VE Day, the end of the war was consummated. And brothers and sisters, we live between the D-Day of kingdom conquest and the VE Day of kingdom consummation. And it gives us a picture of how we're to live today because we are now agents of the kingdom of God working subversively in a broken world. Listen, the world's getting more and more hostile to the message we bring. I do not have to tell you, you can turn on the television. What we believed and was often a mainstream view just 20 years ago is now enough to get you as the lead story on every news network. You'll be demonized, you'll be criticized, you'll be threatened, and you'll be boycotted. But in the midst of all that, King Jesus has already won the battle, but we're in the middle between D-Day and V-E Day, and King Jesus still wins. Most of the cultural indicators are going the wrong way. Most of the spiritual indicators are going the wrong way. In the last 20 years, the percentage of self-identified Christians has declined by about 10% in North America. It's continuing that direction. We do see reality. Even some of the larger and stronger denominations are are experiencing challenges along the way. Now, for some, the sky is falling. I don't think the sky is falling, neither statistically or spiritually. Statistically, because the reality is the percentage of people who claim Jesus as Savior and they've been born again is actually slightly up over the last decade. The greatest decline is, well, in self-identified Christians who no longer identify themselves as Christians but never really walked in churches where the gospel was preached. And so, but the reality is these are challenging statistics and challenging time. And that's why in the midst of all this, we have to redouble and refocus our efforts on announcing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and starting churches that do the same. There was a famous sermon in the 20th century that was popularized later. It was famous in the African-American historical church context. It was popularized by an Anglo preacher later. It went something like this. It said, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And if you've ever heard it preached, and you can actually watch some videos on YouTube that are remarkable from that historic African-American tradition, so filled with oppression and and yet hope in the midst of it. They'd say, you know, it's Friday, and and the world looks dark, and the world looks bleak, but Sunday's a-coming. And and it would go, and it would build. It's Friday, but Sunday's a-coming. It's a remarkable thing, and that's where we are. Again, we live between the Good Friday of Kingdom Conquest and the Easter Sunday of Kingdom Coronation. Where does that leave us? Followers of Christ wanting to live out God's mission in the already but not yet. Here's where it leads us, right? It means, as Philip Yancey writes in his book, it's real simple, it's Saturday on planet earth. And you and I need to be sharing Jesus and planting churches with everyone who will listen. 
It's not always easy, but you're an ambassador. Your church is an embassy, and sharing Christ and planting churches is how God expands his kingdom. Third, number one is we start with the reign of God. Number two, the already but not yet. Third is the present kingdom. It's a real simple word. It's the kingdom has come near, Jesus says. It has come near. That's not a a chronological statement that, you know, maybe next week it's kind of near. That's a geographic statement. In other words, God has always ruled from his throne in heaven, but now the kingdom has come near because God the Son has been born Jesus the Christ, and he announces to people, now announce the kingdom. Matthew 10, 7, he says, as you go, announce this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Luke 17, the Pharisees want to ask him, where's the kingdom of God? What's it going to look like? He says to them, the kingdom of God is not something observable. No one will say, look here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is among you. King Jesus has come. You have been transferred. I have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. And now we are citizens of his kingdom in a world that's in rebellion to his rightful reign. So what do we do? Well, we, we, we share the love of Christ and we show the love of Christ. I've talked about sharing through evangelism and church planning and I love showing. I, lo- I love what I'm hearing about love loud. North American Mission Board emphasis to show the love of Christ. You see, when we're about gospel demonstration and about gospel proclamation, we're going about telling and doing good news. Now, don't don't make the mistake of thinking that we can do one without the other. People often quote St. Francis of Assisi when he said, when he said, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. There's two problems with that. Number one, he never said it. Number two, it's really bad theology. (laughs) Other than that, you feel free to use it. No, not at all. It's kind of like saying, feed the hungry, if necessary, use food. No, they need to hear the good news of the gospel, for the kingdom is broken into this world. Yes, God has always reigned. Yes, the world is in rebellion to the rightful rule of a sovereign God. Yes, we have been transferred, but now we live as ambassadors. You know, I'm not um, from the South, but I'm trying to fit in. My daughters are good Southern girls. And I'm fixing to learn how to do that myself. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. Some of you know me. No, I'm a New Yorker. You got a problem with that? Uh, uh, so, but I've lived in uh, Tennessee now for five years. I used to live here. Um, but this really doesn't count as the South in Atlanta. Let's just be honest. Um, but I, I, uh, I'm learning Tennessee history now from my daughters. They're studying and I'm studying with them. I have three daughters. They're 7, 10, and 14, so you can pray for me. And, uh, but I love my girls, and we're studying history together. And I learned about the role of Tennessee in the Civil War. Now, I didn't know much about this, but, but here's what I learned. I learned that Tennessee was not a major player, but it was a major place in the Civil War. You learn about state history when you grow up in a state, so I'm re- learning with them. One of the things I learned is, is that Tennessee was the last state to secede from the Union. Here's why. They said that the secession was illegal and illegitimate secession. The Supreme Court would later agree with them that it was actually illegal and illegitimate, never recognized by the, by the union, the, what the, was seen as the, as the lawful government. Of course, people, I know you get, get people all excited when you talk about things like this, but, but, but Tennessee's the last state to secede. When it secedes, it doesn't secede at first because it, it, it says it's illegal. We can't join the rebellion. This is the rebellion, and, and they're the, they call themselves the rebels. They were loyal to the union. But then the way the North carried out the war turned them against the their sentiments against the North, and, and soon they voted to, to join the rebellion. But the problem was is that it wasn't equally, the view wasn't equally distributed across Tennessee. As a matter of fact, East Tennessee, East Tennessee had its sympathies with the Union. Shelbyville, which is not to the east, but sort of represents, it's kind of a connection. 
They called it Little Boston. And in East Tennessee, they have a county called Union County. And so the moment that Tennessee seceded from the Union and joined what many saw as that illegal rebellion, many of the Tennesseans saw as an illegal and illegitimate rebellion, the moment Tennessee seceded from the Union, East Tennessee seceded from Tennessee, which creates an awkward moment. Uh, didn't go well for the people of East Tennessee, but they said our loyalties to the Union, this rebellion is illegal and illegitimate. Our loyalty remains to the Union. Here's the problem. Immediately, Tennessee invaded East Tennessee. They went to a subversive battle to stand for what they saw as the legal and legitimate leadership that took place not in Richmond, but they saw in Washington, D.C. So they went subversive along the way. Now, it didn't go well for them, but they stood, and you can still get t-shirts in East Tennessee to this day that say what they thought of them. They thought of themselves, simply put, as the rebellion against the rebellion. Brothers and sisters, we're all East Tennessee. I want you to hear this. Because God has always ruled from his throne in heaven. But the world is in an illegal and illegitimate rebellion against the good sovereign rule of a holy and perfect God. God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And then he has given us a mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to start churches that reflect the good news of Jesus Christ, and to show the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are the rebellion against the rebellion. That's us. So it closed with, the first part, repent. Repent, Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Friends, don't be afraid of the word repent. That's what lost people need to hear from your lips. Maybe not, I get not the first thing. Hi, I'm Ed. Repent! There's these videos on YouTube that people like to sort of do that evangelism method. It's, it's evangelism by deeply offending people. <laughs> not sure that's the best strategy. But here's what I want you not to miss. It's always going to offend people when you tell them that they're dead in their trespasses and sins. There's nothing they can do to merit themselves before God except to call out upon his name, repent of their sins. He will save them. He will change them. He will transfer them from the domain of darkness. And they too will be a part of the rebellion against the rebellion. Repent. So part of it is the repentance as we become followers of Jesus, repent. We turn from ourselves and our sins and we trust and follow Jesus. Part of it is to recognize that the, the world's rebellion still calls to me. Maybe, maybe not to you. Maybe not to you. You're maybe more holy and more spiritual than I am. But I don't think so. I spoke to the Nazarene denomination folks recently and they believe in total sanctification. I've been around you folks, and we do not believe in total sanctification, I can assure you. <laughs> Nor do I. So I'm constantly repenting, saying, God, forgive me, redirect me, focus me on your kingdom's work so that I might share Christ, I might show Christ, and I might start churches that announce the good news of the name of Jesus Christ. Keep me from all the other things. Don't let my life and my church become a cul-de-sac on that great commission highway. But let me share Christ. Let me show the love of Christ. Let me start churches that repent, that show forth Christ so that men and women might repent and follow Christ. 
Literally means to change your mind about something. Can I just tell you this? American Christians need to change their mind about why they're around. Because they seem to think they're around. Kind of gather around each other. Talk about the bad things that are out there. May, may they accuse you of what they accuse Jesus of. He spent too much time with, with sinners and Republicans. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's not a problem for many. Um, spend too much time with sinners and publicans. Folks, may we be known as people who are about the gospel, sharing it, living out its implications, and showing the love of Christ, and starting churches that reflect the name and fame of King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we're reminded that by your grace and by your goodness, we are redeemed, and you've changed us. You've given us new life. Father, I remember that day on August 13th, 1977 when I called out on you and you transferred me from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son you love. Lord, I pray for my dad, his wife, my brother, his new wife, my extended family. I pray for the neighbors of all of us represented here today. I pray for those who live near our church families. I pray for the Pokot in Africa and the Quechua in the highlands of Peru and the Iban in Malaysia. And I pray that our heart would break for them the way your heart breaks. And you looked down on that hill on the side of Jerusalem and you wept for they were like sheep without a shepherd. <laughs> They're a world in rebellion to you and yet you weep for them. Father, cause us to weep as Jesus wept, so we might share Christ, start churches, and show his love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.